the great God. And all people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbathani, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelata, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord our, your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the law, to the words of the law. Lord, I pray that as we look at your words today, we would respond in a manner that is pleasing to you, that you would revive our hearts, that you would work in ways that we can't even imagine. Lord, soften us, challenge us. May I be less and only your words come through. And Lord, may we respond in kind together as part of your family. In your name I pray, amen. You may sit down. As you know, I, uh, I went back to America this summer, and in, 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 a, in a short period of time, I was able to accumulate a lot of stuff that we would need for the next couple of years living in Hong Kong. Okay, need is a strong word. Stuff we wanted, like cereal and things of that nature. But I also brought back something a little extra just for myself, and you can see it right in this region. Uh, it's amazing. I don't have to spend a lot of time in America to gain weight. It only took me three weeks to gain eight pounds. And so as I've gotten back, I began to realize that I probably needed to do something that I don't often have to do, but that was I needed to go on a diet. And I needed to consider, not because I felt terribly fat, but because I was not as fit as I should be. Maybe some of you have felt that way. Maybe there's times in your life where you felt that the wise decision would be to either go on a diet, to join a gym. Let me ask a question. How many of you have ever joined a gym and never shown up? <laughs> or you've shown up one time? It happens. We were discussing this yesterday with a, a group of people for a birthday lunch. And we get this concept, this novel idea that we, this year, it often happens around New Year's. You know, everybody goes to California Fitness, to physical, to whatever gym is in your clubhouse, whatever the issue may be. We all go and we think that this is the time. And the pattern of dieting often seems to go something like this. First, we realize, hmm, this isn't the way I want to feel or look. Okay? And so we get really motivated. We get excited. We're going to respond to the challenge. And we are going to look like those men and women on magazine covers that have abs that have abs and muscles that have muscles. And we're going to be healthy. Our hearts are going to be in better shape. We're going to move lighter. All of those things. Oh, there we go. Donnie worked his magic. So let's try this again. And anyway, it's a work in progress, as, as the screen says. And then something happens. We begin to realize as we get into this dieting that it's a challenge. And we realize we've got a lot of bad habits that if we are going to get fit, if we are going to live healthier, the, the big phrase these days, if you look around, they're saying live cleaner. 
You know, we want to eliminate those things in our lives, uh, food and, and exercise, uh, or food and, and habit-wise that aren't healthy, that aren't clean. And so we begin to do these. And that means we realize that we're going to have to eliminate certain habits in our life. For me, that might be McDonald's. I'm not going to lie. I like McDonald's. But there's a reason they can make it so fast, because it's just filled with junk. And then you realize, oh, you know, I'm probably going to have to go to that gym I joined. And it begins to get difficult. Maybe for the first few days, we do really well, right? Yeah. The first few days of a diet or of an exercise plan go well. We even go out and we buy famous DVD workouts like Insanity. Have ever any of you heard of Insanity? That's a big famous one, and it is insane. And I've started it three times, and I've never finished I do other things instead. So we begin. But we realize in the process that it's, there's some things that need to be dealt with. And these habits are going to have to change. And so instead of going to McDonald's for lunch, we pack a salad. We eat a yogurt. We go gluten-free. We, we do this and we do that. And beginning... It's quite a sacrifice. It's quite painful. And some of you might even do the juicing thing where you detox and you even smell the stuff coming out. But as the process continues, you realize that, wow, this is starting to pay off. I look better. I see my toes. I haven't seen them in years or whatever the case may be. And we begin to change our lifestyle for a longer period of time because we've realized that as we dealt with the bad habits, as we dealt with the junk food, the potato chips, the the whatever it might be, the sodas, the, the junk, as we got rid of that, we felt better. We had more energy. We lived happier. You know, it just, you don't go to bed the same way. You wake up a little more alert and you feel better. A diet and a change in lifestyle can be a wonderful thing. And it can also be traumatic. And we also start and stop. And and some of us will go on a diet that lasts for three weeks and we lose all the weight and then we gain it all back, right? That happens as well. Well, what if our spiritual lives were similar? What if there was a pattern to this thing we often talk about called revival? Churches love to ask God to send a revival. And revival is a fancy way of saying a miraculous work of a sovereign God that falls upon the hearts of people and causes them not just to address that they are missing the mark, but then to change their lifestyle. And we've seen throughout history some amazing revivals. We hear of men like George Whitfield, of Jonathan Edwards, uh, of many others that were amazing preachers. They're famous. Billy Graham was known as for his evangelism and his, his fervor in that. And we often long say, Lord, revive us. We want your spirit to fall like it did with, with Whitfield or with Jonathan Edwards. But when we get down to it and we look, sometimes we begin to think, well, if it's going to be that much work, maybe I'm comfortable where I'm at. Maybe I don't need to go to the gym this week or month or year. But the interesting thing is when you look throughout history at revivals, 
And as you look at scripture and God worked among his people, the pattern's pretty much the same. First, you always see that behind every revival there were people praying. We know, as we've seen throughout the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a praying man. If you read a book before Ezra, the priest, the the one we hear about today, he too was a man of devout prayer. And he led by example. Both of these men were tremendous godly men that were willing to lead by example in prayer indeed. And it started there. But you know, the next thing we see in every good revival is it always, always starts with the word of God. It doesn't start with just a really good preacher. It doesn't start with a really funny story. It starts with God's word burning in the hearts of people and challenging them to look deeply at who they are and who they can be in him. And that's where the Jews found themselves. The work of rebuilding the the walls of Jerusalem was done. 52 days And they had to realize that they couldn't do it on their own. That they didn't have amazing cranes and big machinery to help them build the wall. But in 52 days, the wall was rebuilt. And while they were still living as slaves to Persia, God had restored a little bit of that which had been given to them long ago. And they had to give God credit for it. And that's what we saw last week. And so, in a fitting response, they go to Ezra. And they say, read us the law. Read us the words of Moses. Read us the law. And that's what they do. The law is read. And we read in verse 3, Ezra, he read about it aloud from daybreak till noon. Okay, let's stop there for just a second. I don't know if you were awake at sunrise. I was. And as far as I can tell, it happened somewhere between 5.40 and 5.50. I was in the shower. So somewhere in that period, the, the sun started to rise over the eastern hills that are off to the side of where I live. Okay? So if I got up here at 5.50 and you were all there, actually, you're going to be standing, by the way. Okay? And I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1. And I am going to read this law. I'm, I'm a good ways in. But you've still got an hour and 45 minutes to go till I finish. How many of us would sit, would stand, and listen to God's word, not only read, I just read it, we stood, and we heard the word of God. I read it as best I could. I can't pronounce all those names, sorry. But then as you read on, it says the Levites were given... And they were invited to explain the law. To make sure that everyone understood what was going on. That God didn't just give his word and make sure that only certain people could get it. But they wanted all people to hear the word and understand it. You hear that time and again in just those first nine verses of Nehemiah 8. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And then in verse 6, or no, in verse 5, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him. And the people all stood up. They lifted their hands in verse 6. And they responded by praising the Lord. They said, Amen, Amen, let it be so. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
when they came face to face with the reality of God and his word, they couldn't help but fall down before him and say, wow, you are God. They praised the Lord. They didn't stop. They didn't just go in and think about it and go on their way. They responded immediately. They heard the word and it struck their hearts. They understood it. Maybe for some of them, for the first time. Maybe they'd never heard. Because remember, Israel's history, as we'll see as you get into chapter 9, has an up and down bumpy road, doesn't it? They would do the law, things would go well. Then when they prospered, they forgot about God and things would go less well. Right? And then they would cry out, Lord, help me. And he, being compassionate, as you see throughout chapter 9, uh, or his mercies are great, as you see in the ESV. And either one, we see time and again this pattern of getting comfortable with ourselves, then realizing we need God, we can't do this on our own, and saying, help But right now, when they heard the word, when they were being faithful and listening to the word of God, what did they do? They fell down in worship. We talk a lot about worship in church, just like we want to hear a lot about revival. And we want to hear a lot about God at work, and so do I. I've told you that. I asked you this week, remember? Two weeks ago, your homework was to find a need, help meet it. Hopefully you did that. Last week I asked you to listen. I asked you to go around and look for God at work and join in. I pray. I've seen God at work this week in amazing ways. I hope you have too, big and little. His mercies are new every morning. He's always at work. Whether we recognize it or not, that's different. But God doesn't stop working. And the Jews here, they saw it and they couldn't help but stop. In worship, they heard the Lord and they responded. And you know what was amazing was often we go straight in and and the word challenges us to the heart and we realize we're not living up to the standard. But notice as you progress through chapter 8, Nehemiah and Ezra said, stop. Don't go straight into, it's about you and confessing your sins. Not that we won't do that. But first, 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 be about the glory of God. Remember who he is and what he's done and worship him. Make it all about him. Go back to the festival of booths where they would build temporary structures on their flat rooftops and they would live in those to remind them of their transitory past. Remember, they had to roam around the wilderness for 40 years, and they lived in tents. Uh, Ave Robinson posted a joke yesterday of, no wonder the Israelites were stiff-necked people. They had to live in tents and sleep on the ground for 40 years. But they were also stiff-necked, as we read in chapter 9, because they continued to make the mistakes they'd made in the past. They would prosper. They would get comfortable. They would push God off to the side. They would stop worshiping. They would stop listening to his word and applying it to their lives. And they would lose sight of him. Here, with Ezra and with Nehemiah, they are confronted with the word of God. And all they are told to do first is worship him. Celebrate God. 
I wonder, do we know how to celebrate God? Really? Do we know how to stop and say more than just, wow, God? But if I asked you, when was the last time you felt like you were in a state of true worship, true, just reverential, awe-inspiring because of God, not yourself, worship of God, I think many of us might have to think about that for an awful long time. Because sometimes, I think when we read the word, we do a couple of things. Maybe you can relate to one or all of these. Sometimes we wake up in the morning, and maybe you are an auditory learner, so you listen to the word via CD or radio or however you can But what happens is your alarm's gone off and you had a late night last night. And so as you're listening to the word or as you're reading the word, what happens? Fifteen minutes later, you wake up and read the same line you read 15 minutes ago. Does that ever happen to some of you? It's happened to me from time to time. Or as we read the word, we look for what we want it to say to help us in the situation we're in. Right? Yeah, sometimes if we're going through a tough time, we want to make sure that we can tell God what to do for us. That's called, we we read the Bible for us instead of letting the Bible and God through his Holy Spirit inspire and teach us. We tell him what to do. And we do that by reading his scriptures and pulling out what we want it to say. What if all of us, sorry, Pastor Harris, I'm going to use your stool, just sat down somewhere. Jesus says, go find a quiet place Go find a secret place and just grab this. If you're a journaler, grab a notebook and read and pray before the word of God. And what if as we do that, we say, Lord, teach me. Don't let my agenda get in the way of what your word says. Because we all have agendas. Sorry, we do. We all come in with our interpretations and our perspectives on life. But what if we set this down wherever our quiet place is before the Lord? And we said, Lord, take away all that and speak. And what if we didn't get up till he did? What if we waited on him? What if we took Psalm 4610 to heart? Be still and know that I am God. For a long time, the people stood and heard the word of their Lord. And it was explained to them and they responded. And then they went out and they celebrated, not because of who they are, but because of what God had done. Because remember, they were living in Jerusalem. And that was miraculous in and of itself. And even more, God had done it. And he deserved all their praise. And then they looked back and they recounted history. And they had seen God time and again delivering his people. Even when they didn't deserve it. And so, for a period of time, that's what they did. They celebrated before God. And they did that, we're told, for seven days. And on the eighth day, they came together for a solemn assembly. Then you jump ahead a couple of weeks and you get into chapter 9. You see, it doesn't just stop at worship. 
It doesn't just stop at saying, God, you are great, because he is great, and he is worthy of far more than we can offer him. The love of mercies and compassion and justice of God are more than our minds can comprehend, no matter how hard we try. But he is still great. And as we come face to face with his law, as we come face to face with him and who he is, I believe we take on a perspective that the psalmist in Psalm 119 knew well. And I want to read to you a progression that we talked about on Wednesday night. This is Psalm 119. It's not going to be on the screens, but I'd like you to listen to this. It's 119 verses 129 through 136. And I want you to listen to see if you hear a progression, okay? A a, a movement from one stage of life to another. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant, longing for your commands. Wow. Do we long for the word of God? Do we just hunger and thirst to chew? Remember, to eat his words, to just digest them as he speaks to us. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. I believe as we look at the word of God and as we come to his word solemnly and as we come to his word saying, here I am, Lord, speak. First, we will be drawn to a spirit of worship. We will be drawn to say, how can I not give God credit for who he is and seek in every area of my life to bring him praise? The second thing I believe is the more we look and internalize and learn and apply the word of God, the more he will convict us of our sin. The more he will challenge our habits. Much like a diet, you start off really excited. And it's great. And you're going to look so much like that picture that you've hung on your refrigerator. It's going to be awesome. But then when the hard work comes in, we realize that we've developed some bad habits. And we need to change some things. You don't need a Big Mac and three Cokes a day. Or whatever it is. Your coffee doesn't need eight sugars and whole milk. But instead, what if as the word speaks to us, we say, Lord, search my heart. Refine me. Please, Lord, purify me. And that's what happened next for the people. They confessed and they repented. You get to the beginning of chapter 9 of Nehemiah, and that's what we see happens. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth. You didn't wear sackcloth when you were celebrating. Sackcloth is not comfortable. It was meant not to be comfortable. You wore it as a reminder of your affliction. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you in America we have these things when you were a little kid you would have a sack race and you would get in a big giant bag and you would hop. 
And this was part of field days for kids. And, and the, the sacks that we used were called burlap. And it's this rough, grainy, itchy material that holds dust amazingly well, probably because they only get used once a year. And your legs would just itch immediately as you hopped down the hundred yard. We used yards, not meters. And you would do this, and you would hop, and then you would be so itchy. But these people were wearing sackcloth, a material similar. Itchy, uncomfortable, as a sign, as a remembrance of that sin, of that affliction, of the pain of their past. And not only that, but they fasted. They, they, they invited the Lord to speak further. Fasting is this wonderful discipline where we let go of something for a period of time. And in that time that we would spend on food is often the case. We say, Lord, remind me and speak to me. And that time will be devoted and dedicated to you. And as they did these things, they were drawn as a people to stand from where they stood and spend a quarter of the day in confession and in worshiping God. Now, notice I say confession and worship. We start with worship. When we are exposed to the true living and active word of God, sharper than a double-edged sword, it challenges us to the heart. It points us to God and His great might and His great power and His awe-inspiring, amazing, life-changing compassion, mercy, grace, justice, honesty, and truth, and love. And as we worship, we are challenged that though we are told to be like Jesus, often we are not. And when we get to that point, we can make one of two responses. We can run away and hope that nobody knows. Or we can deal with it. For the Jews at this point in time, what'd they do? They stopped in their tracks and they confessed. They did it together. As a nation. As a people. And in that time, while they did that, you know what flows out of true confession? What's next? Worship. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had to say you're sorry for something big? If you're married, have you ever had to apologize your wife to your wife for how you've spoken to her? And maybe you say, I should have, but I didn't. Well, do it today. That'll make your marriage better. And wives, same. But have you ever noticed that when you confess, when you say, I was wrong, I messed up here. What happens to your spirit in the relationship as you deal with that, usually? It's totally different, isn't it? You are lighter. Often a broken relationship begins to be restored. If we use the marriage analogy, if you've gone to your spouse knowing that you screwed up, you said what you should not have said, you were wrong. And you have the courage and the love to say that. Say it with me. Let's just practice together, shall we? Say three words. Nobody likes to say them, so we'll all do it together. I was wrong. Can you say that with me? I was wrong. I don't care if you're married or not. You're all going to be wrong at one time or another. 
If we are able to say this, it does tremendous things to restore relationships, right? We see it time and again, but if I were to ask you, how often do any of us say, I was wrong, this is going to happen. But for the people of Israel, they fell down before their God in worship. As they had risen, they then fasted. They put on sackcloth. And they went before the Lord. And they confessed that we, God, your people, have been wrong. We have sinned against you. Remember, just before, they had already dealt with the fact that they were treating each other unjustly. They were dealing with things in a public and unified manner. And out of that, as restoration came, as the Holy Spirit was at work in hearts, it drew them again to a place of worship. You see, when we read and we hear from the Word, and when God speaks mightily, not only are we drawn to a place of worship, but as He convicts our heart, as the Holy Spirit works on us, first He teaches us, then He often convicts us of sin as He speaks And third, he draws us back to a place of worship with him. Because we realize that in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The people spent hours upon hours confessing and worshiping the Lord as they heard the word continue to be read about us? When we hear the word, do we respond or do we just think, hmm, yeah, that was good. I should think about that. The people responded. They didn't stop. A huge part of worship is this act of confession, admitting that we cannot justify, we cannot fix, we cannot correct ourselves. But the blood of Christ shed for us, allows us to be forgiven and in right relationship with God. Confession and worship must always be linked. But along those lines, as we confess, as the Holy Spirit guides us toward these wrongs that we have committed, we often also have to admit that there are consequences. You see in verse 36, but see, we are slaves today, slaves today in the land you gave our forefathers. Now, the king of Persia had been quite nice to the people of Judah. He had re- he'd given them back Jerusalem. He'd helped pay for the rebuilding. Things were great. But the land was still not their own. The promised land was not Israel's. It was not Judah's. Remember, the kingdom had already divided anyway. And there had been problem after problem, uh, turning away from God after turning away from God. The kings did what was right in their own eyes and not what was right in the eyes of God. They had kings in general. That was a bad step. And in this process, their land was taken away from them. They were conquered. They were kind of restored. But then they fell back into the pattern. And it started again. And as you read chapter 9 of Nehemiah, you find this pattern repeats. As I've said earlier, it starts with turning our ways away from the word. It then turns into comfort in doing things our way instead of his. 
And then as things get worse, because we cannot do it on our own, because when I try to do something fixing, uh, I usually make it worse, not better. Then they cried out to the Lord for help. And as you read chapter 9 of Nehemiah, you will see a word. If you've got the NIV, it says compassion. You will see that word repeated throughout the chapter, time and time again. If you're reading the ESV, it says his mercies. Depending on which translation, it'll say a couple other things, but the word is the same. God's compassion and mercy for his people, even though they didn't deserve it, he would restore his people. We're asking God for a revival. It starts with his word. It starts with a hunger and thirst for his word that leads us to a place of worship that we can't help but say, God, wow, my life is nothing but yours. And as we do that, it should lead us to a point of repentance that says, I don't want anything to get between me and you. Lord, cleanse me from all unrighteousness, from all bad motives, from all sin, from all mistakes of the past. Forgive me, purify me. And then as they do, look what the Jews do next. They change course. They go the other way. And they do it in writing. It's amazing. When you get to the last verse of chapter 9, look at what comes next. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. In other words, we realize we have done this, 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 and this. And as you've looked, uh, we don't have time to read through all of chapter 9, but as you look at the ebb and flow, they are honest about the mistakes of their forefathers. They don't run away from the fact that they have sinned. They confess openly. And in the process of restoration, they make a binding agreement before the Lord God himself, another act of worship, saying, we're going to put our seal on this, and we're going to change course, and we're going to go the other way. If we want revival to happen, why not follow the example of God's word among his people? Start by hungering and thirsting for his word. The more time I spend in it, you know what happens to me? The more time I want to spend in it. The more I want to be in the Word and learning. And I'm constantly surprised by what I'd never seen before as He opens my eyes. It's not because I'm getting smarter. It's because the Holy Spirit is teaching me. As George Whitfield, as Jonathan Edwards, as other revivalists always proclaimed, it started with the Word, with God being great and dealing with the sin that we realize is before us and changing our course and going toward the path of righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It's about Him. And for the people of of Jerusalem at this time, they said, we're going to put it in writing and we're going to sign it in front of all of you and we are going to change course. We're not going to be the same. God was at work and he moved mightily. Unfortunately, there is one more lesson to be learned here because as you finish off the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, along with Ezra and the Levites, had pointed people back to God, back to the Word. 
But Nehemiah went back. He went back to Susa. He resumed his job. He returned 12 years later. And what did he find? The people had lost sight of the word. The people had lost sight of the God that had delivered them yet again, that had given them back Jerusalem, that was restoring them. And they had begun to do that which the law commanded them not to do. And so Nehemiah had a choice, again, like we all do when we're faced with something like this. He could have just wiped his feet off and gone the other way and said, you guys aren't worth the hassle. We've been through this. I've done this. I'm done with you. No. What did he do? He went right back in. And he told him again, go back to the law. Go back to the word of God. Confess your sins. And then he even prayed, God, deal with these people. Because we need him to deal with our hearts. I don't know where all of us are in this room today. I know that in our spiritual journey, we're all in different places. I know much like any attempt I make at a diet and changing my lifestyle habits, it takes work. And there are some things that have to be given up. But when the end result is true and free life, just like as as you've successfully changed your lifestyle and you eat better and you exercise, you feel better, much grander of a way when we discover the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ, as we get the privilege of demonstrating his great love by obeying his commands, we realize that life is so much bigger than we ever imagined it could be. And as we spend time exploring his word, we can't help but worship our God and King. We can't help but deal with any sin, no matter how small or big, and lay it before him and deal with it with others and move on, changing course, being renewed day by day. So I don't know where you are, but I beg God to change our hearts, to make us a people that hunger and thirst for him, that listen to his word, that get into the closet of prayer, that together authentically confess. James 5.16, in the context of healing, says that we should confess our sins one to another. You know, there are times when sin causes sickness. It's not always the case, as Jesus tells us. But sin infects every area of our lives. It changes our attitudes. It changes how we react to others. It changes how willing we are to spend time in the Word because we don't want to do it because we're living in sin. And if we read the Word, we're not going to want to live in sin anymore. So what if we stopped? What if the vicious cycle was surrendered to the Lord today, right now? What if we dealt with the Word of God as He's given it to us? On Wednesday night, I invited us during prayer time, and I would love for all of you to join us on Wednesday night during fellowship, worship, and prayer. I love those times together, and I'd love to have you with us. But we did something different this week. I invited us as we started our time together to finish a sentence. And we started with, bless the Lord. And as I listened, and as we prayed together, it was amazing what God was laying on people's hearts. Because often we think when we pray, it's about what we want. But instead, we just wanted to bless the Lord. And out of the words of those that were in that room came scripture after scripture after scripture of who God is. And then he led us into a time of confession. And then we worshiped again. 
And then we sought God to work in mighty ways. Let us be a people that searches his word, that asks him to speak to us without our agendas, without our motives, without our misconceptions of others, but said, Lord, teach me. And then we confess and we deal with that which he's laying on our hearts. It might require a softening of heart. And then we change course, not in our own strength, but in his. And we let other people know how he's working because they'll hold us accountable together. My prayer is today that God would revive our hearts as we dive into his word, as we confess and worship again, and as we change course. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that when we read it and when we listen to you, it cuts deep. But it points us to being a people that are after you. It points us to being a people that are marked by our Christ-likeness. Lord, your word always points back to you. May we be disciples that are mature, May we be worshipers that as painful as it is, confess our sins one to another and to you. And that we move forward by looking back and looking ahead. In your name I pray. Amen. Let us all rise. 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 Let us all rise.